Now, several weeks ago, we began our look at the book of First Thessalonians, and we've been going through the book a section at a time, usually taking about half a chapter a week to study. And uh, as we're looking at chapter 4, we're actually taking three weeks to study chapter 4. So we started looking at this chapter last week, and right now we're in the middle section of chapter 4, which, if you probably noticed, is not a very long section. We're only talking several verses. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, down to verse 12. And uh, it's a very short portion of Scripture, but it's an interesting and it's a valuable portion of Scripture that I thought it would be uh, edifying for us as people who are seeking to grow in our faith to take a look at on its own. And in this portion of Scripture, there's a variety of things that I think we'll see during our time together today, but one of the things that I wanted to point out to us was kind of a list of things that are brought up in this brief portion of Scripture, and that's this, four aspirations of people that have their life together. That's a list that I see in this portion of Scripture that I wanted to highlight for us today. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, like I said, we'll pick up at verse 9. I'm just going to read down to verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 9. And this is what it says in this portion of God's Word. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for this portion of scripture that you've allowed us to be able to spend some time thinking about today and reading today and contemplating. And Lord, we know when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, sometimes, especially when we're looking at something that's on the brief side, it can be very easy for us to just kind of breeze right over this or to skip right over this. But Lord, you've shared some very valuable things with us through the Apostle Paul in this portion of your Word that obviously it wouldn't be right for us to skip over these things. Lord, you show us the type of things that we should aspire to do as men and women who know your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that we need your strength. We know that we need your guidance. We know know that we need your power to do any of the things that you've called us to do. So we pray that as we look at this portion of your word today, that you'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts and help us to understand exactly what you want and what you want to see in our lives, and that that would be what we would desire to show forth. And so we thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word. Teach it to us now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Anyone here consider themselves an avid reader? An avid reader. Someone that's like, you've always got a book going. All right, I see some nods, I see some hands. All right, I'm I'm in that category. I've always got a book going, always got multiple books going. Some people really enjoy fiction, so maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, really enjoy fiction. My wife really enjoys uh, fiction. She kind of reads a a mix of different things, but she she reads fiction, and um, I have to say, if I'm honest, even though I'm I'm a voracious reader, I find myself always reading. I like to have multiple things going on. 
uh, at the same time, but when I was thinking about how often do I read fiction, I could think of two fiction books I've read over the past 10 years, so I guess that would be pretty infrequently, right? So I'm a once-every-five-year fiction reader, and some, somehow, you know, something in my head says, hey, your fiction quota is low, you need to re-up, it's been half a decade, right? But most of the time when I'm reading, um, I, I, I find that I tend to gravitate toward maybe three particular categories of books. I, I like to read history, I like to read biography, and I really like to read things that are how-to books, you know, things that are practical that I think if I want to learn something and I, I think, all right, well, let me find a how-to book on this particular subject. But basically, I'm fascinated by reading about the lives of interesting people, and I try and learn things. I try and gain wisdom from either their examples or their teaching, and so I, I'm constantly just in this cycle of trying to feed my mind these things. And recently, uh, I, I started reading three books pretty much at the same time. Uh, I, I read books like I, I change TV channels, right? You know, if I get bored with one, I move on to another one, and I kind of do it at the same time. And I picked up three books essentially in the same week, and I didn't wait till I finished one before I started reading the other. I just started reading the three of them at the same time, just at different times during the day. This will be the book I read in the morning. This will be the book that I read at dinner time. This will be the book I read before I go to bed. And I just kind of was feeding my mind these things, and I noticed um, some interesting things about the three books I was reading. One book was written by a seasoned pastor who had been in ministry for a very long time at this point, and uh, through his many decades of, of ministry, he decided to write certain things down, and he had counsel for those who were coming after him. And I thought, boy, this is exactly the type of thing I like reading. So I'm reading this pastor's counsel, I'm reading his advice, I'm reading his encouragement, I thought, all right, that's extremely helpful. The second book was chronicling someone who basically started a home-based business. They started their own business. He's actually a photographer. I, I don't have any interest in becoming a photographer. I appreciate those that, that are good at that. I don't know if that's something I would necessarily be good at, but I was more interested in just reading about his life story and the process of where he was and what it took for him to establish this business and what it was like for him to grow it and uh, what things are like for his family now and all that. And so I was just reading his story. And then the third book that I was reading about uh, it was written by somebody that, if I had to guess, he's probably maybe a couple years younger than my dad. And it was basically a book on stewardship principles. And he was talking about some of the lessons he's learned, particularly over the past four decades, related to personal stewardship and things of that of that nature. And so I was reading all three of these things. I'm still actually not finished with either with any of them. I'm like close to one of them. Uh, but I was reading each of these things all at the same time, still reading these things uh, at the same time, and I'm just finding it interesting how, it's, how they're all holding my attention because each of the authors are doing a very good job of giving me a very transparent glimpse into their day-to-day -day life and into their day-to-day -day experience and into some of the things that they got right and some of the things that they feel that they got wrong. And I like to read books like that because what I feel like it's doing for me is that it's giving me an edge. And what I mean by that is this. It's allowing me to glean from somebody else's wisdom. So one of the things that I've been praying very regularly for uh, in regard to my walk with the Lord ever since I became serious about my faith in Him is that He would grant me wisdom. Do you, do you pray for wisdom from the Lord? I know some of you uh, also do that. You know, we, we ask the Lord, Lord, please give me 
wisdom. I don't need to know every last detail of what, what comes up ahead. I don't need to know <clears throat> every last detail about today. I'm just asking that you would give me wisdom as I approach whatever comes my way. And uh, he's shown me that there is a lot of wisdom that can be gained from observing lives that are lived well. When you observe a life that's lived well, you can gain a lot of wisdom. So you could observe it certainly through someone's story as they tell it through a book. You could, you could learn from uh, the type of things that, that people demonstrate right in front of you because of your personal relationships with them. Uh, I find that in life, it's wise for me to learn from my own mistakes, but I would even say that it's probably extra wise, maybe a little bit wiser, to also be learning from the mistakes of others so I don't have to actually experience the pain that it learns or that it, that it requ- requires to learn some of those lessons. You know, I could watch what somebody else has gone through or learn what they've gone through and adopt that into my own life without a- actually having to experience the pain. I could save myself from needless pain. I can grow in wisdom from the experience of others, not just my own experience. Now, keep that all in the back of your mind as we approach this scripture. Because from time to time, the Lord will allow us to meet or observe people who really seem to have their act together. He allows us to meet people. He allows us to observe people that really seem like they have their act together. The best examples tend to follow a pattern that demonstrates the fact that Jesus is on the forefront of their minds, that Jesus is on the forefront of their lives. And this also seems to be the general way in which their faith in Christ is lived out. You know, with Christ on the forefront of their minds, they make all sorts of decisions. And when you look at the scripture that we just read together from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's the type of thing that I see Paul describing in these verses. Now, it's just a small section, but here he's talking about this idea of things that those who have their life together, things that they're incorporating into their lives, into their walk with Jesus Christ, these aspirations. And again, as I mentioned before, I see at least four, depending on how you carve up these verses, I see at least four aspirations here of people who have their life together that I think are useful for us as we seek to walk with Christ in the midst of our day-to-day lives. And one of the things that you could see right in the start of this section is that those who have their act together, those who are walking by faith in Jesus Christ, learn to love others deeply. Now, what does Paul mean when he's describing this kind of love? Look again at verses 9 and 10. He says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed, or excuse me, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So one of the most obvious aspirations that the Lord tends to place upon the hearts of growing Christians is to learn to love as they have been loved. So if you've come to know Christ, that means that you've, at this point, observed, you've contemplated, you've experienced the depth of His love for you. You know, you've seen this firsthand. You know about this. You've experienced this. You've seen how His love works in all kinds of contexts, in all kinds of situations. You've reflected on the depth of Christ's selfless sacrifice on your behalf. And so as recipients of the love of Christ it becomes our aspiration 
to demonstrate that love to those that He places in our lives. It's the natural outpouring of what Christ pours in. So He pours in, fills us up, and gives us opportunity to pour that right back out. And it becomes very apparent from Paul's words here to the Thessalonians that this was an area that they were excelling in. They were doing rather well with this. They were excelling in this area. In fact, uh, even though he addressed this topic here in this letter as he's writing these things to them, he actually says here, look, you know, basically he's saying, you don't need anyone to write to you about this because it's clear that God is teaching you to do this through the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. He's teaching you what it looks like to love. So you don't really need me to write to you about this. What a wonderful thing for a local church to be known for. You know, that that church was known for being loving toward one another. That that's, that's the reputation that they had developed. When people talked about them, they, they talked about, you know, what a loving church. I remember talking to one of my friends uh, growing up, and I was about to visit his church. I was probably about 15 at the time, and I was about to visit his church on a Sunday morning. And I said, hey, what's your church like? And I was describing what my home church was like, and he, this is what he said to me. I kid you not. Now, this is a little inside baseball language uh, that sometimes you know, Christians will use, but this is what he said. I said, so what's your church like? And he said, if I had to describe my church, I'd say it's, it's kind of like a Corinthian church. And I was like, a Corinthian church? Now, I didn't know what he meant, really, at the time. But what he meant was this. Well, there's a lot of infighting, hidden sin, a lot of conflict, and we really need somebody to come in and lay the hammer down. <laughs> that's what, like, that's literally what he was getting at. And uh, when I got there, I, he wasn't kidding. Like, I, I thought, oh yeah, it's amazing that this church even exists as a local ministry. It truly was a Corinthian church. And, uh, and they, you know, they would just fight and fight and fight and fight. And I thought, why does anyone come back? Like, why, like, why are they even part of this? If it's just like one fight after another. But that apparently is not what was the case for the church at Thessalonica. They were a Thessalonian church, right? They were a loving church. Every local church should be known for that. That should be the reputation of every local church, that we would be known for our love. But Paul didn't want them to just kind of sit on their hands about this. He didn't want them to be like, hey, the apostle, you know, a legit apostle just said we're such a loving church. It can be very easy in a moment like that to just kind of sit on your hands at that point and say, I think we've already arrived. <laughs> I think we're good. You know, not much more we need to do. We're apparently a loving church. But Paul, as he shares this with them, he says, look, you don't really need me to write to you about this because it's clear God's been teaching you to do this. But he wants them, he says here, to do this more and more. Continue to prioritize it. Don't ever become slack about it. Continue to prioritize it. You know, he encouraged them, uh, even though they were already a loving church, to love more and more and more as time progressed. Now, keep in mind when he's saying these things that he isn't merely asking them to develop a warm, sentimental affection for one another. Now, let me say this. You know, as we're gathered together here for worship, if you have a warm, sentimental affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, right? To have a warm, sentimental affection for one another, go for it. That's fantastic. However, that's not really the essence of what he's getting at here. When he's encouraging them to be people who love more and more and more, the kind of love that he's speaking of here involved sacrificially serving one another. That's what he's talking about. 
to sacrificially serve one another as you have been sacrificially served by Jesus Christ, to place the needs of other people above your own needs, not to just love in word, but to see if there's a way you can love in deed. And so he was encouraging the church to show that kind of love. So if we value wisdom, if we value spiritual maturity, if we value growth, this is something we'll aspire to make a dominant characteristic of our lives. This is the type of thing that we'll value. As the Holy Spirit empowers us to love, we will learn to love deeply. We will learn to love generously. Uh, This is something that the church at Thessalonica was doing, and it was something that they aspired to do more and more as the Apostle Paul encouraged them to do. So that's one aspiration of someone that has their life together. That's one aspiration of someone who's truly committed to their walk with Christ. But there's some other things that he brings up here that I want to focus on this morning as well. And that's this, and this is kind of interesting what he says here, because... um, you know, as I've mentioned in some of our other, uh, some of the other weeks as we've been studying this book, Paul spoke very fam- with, with a lot of familiarity to the church at Thessalonica. And there are certain things you can say to people when you know that there's a lot of mutual love, and you can just kind of just speak with familiarity, and you know that it's not going to damage the relationship if you decide to be a little bit extra honest with them. So he chooses to do that for their own benefit, but basically in verse 11, he basically tells them, live quietly and mind your own business. <laughs> live quietly and mind your own business. Do you ever say to somebody, hey, mind your own business? And were they like, thank you for saying that to me. <laughs> I, you are so kind. Could you also write that to me in a letter? You know, Thank you for telling me to mind my own business. But is that not what he's saying? He said, live quietly, mind your own business. Look at how he phrases it. We'll revisit verse 11 several times here, but let me just read that verse. It says, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, that second part we'll get to in a few minutes. But he says, aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs. So live quietly, mind your own business. So I find Paul's additional instructions here very interesting. You know, as we look at what he's saying here, he's basically telling the church to keep their nose where it belonged. Keep your nose where it belongs. Now, I don't know all the details of what he was thinking about when he wrote this, but I would suspect there was probably something specific in the church that he was aware of that prompted him to actually phrase this that way. Meaning there was probably something or many, maybe several somethings in the church that were taking place that were starting to rise to the level of concern to him where he thought, I think I need to say this. I think I need to encourage these believers. They're loving But I also need to remind them, hey, live quietly, mind your own business. Live quietly, mind your own affairs. There was probably something triggering that. In fact, by the way, that's something we all struggle to do, is it not? To live quietly, to mind your own business. Does anyone get through life doing that perfectly? I have not succeeded in getting through life doing that perfectly. And I can also confirm to you that many of the people in my life have not succeeded in getting through life doing that perfectly. Um, I remember... Um, this was a couple years after I first became a pastor. Uh, I, so I, I became a pastor at age 21, which I know is on the very young side to start serving full-time in pastoral ministry, but the way my life worked out and the doors that the Lord opened up, that's when I, that's when I began. And so full-time serving at age 21, fresh out of college, um, and uh, started serving in pastoral ministry. And I remember particularly during those early years of ministry, I just, 
anytime an older pastor showed me any, any uh, interest or, or wanted to invest any time in me, I was all about it. You know, I really just wanted to spend time with guys that were more seasoned than me. And I was so honored when at one point uh, there was this small group of guys, mostly pastors, church leaders, um, that got together regularly for lunch, and they invited me. And I, I thought, wow, they invited me. So I guess I'm a real pastor now, you know. <laughs> they invited me. And we used to go to a few different places, and I loved those lunches. I loved it. I loved when we would get together. I loved having the opportunity to just sit around. And a lot of time, I wouldn't say a whole lot. I would just sit there, and I would just listen and, and take it all in and take it all in. And it really got off to a good start. And then somewhere along the way, something changed. And I remember realizing at one point that the conversation around the table was starting to drift toward becoming a bit gossipy. You know, where I think under the umbrella of, hey, I'm concerned about this person or I'm concerned about that person, the conversation started to take a turn. And then I noticed that, and we would get together very regularly for lunch. Sometimes it was several times a month. It wasn't just once a month. Sometimes it would be two, three times a month we'd get together. And I started noticing, I was like, wow, the conversation's really becoming, like, I was starting to get uncomfortable with it. And then finally, I went to, I got to a spot where I thought, you know, I still look up to these guys, but I don't, I can't go to these lunches anymore. Because I was leaving every time with my conscience didn't feel clear being, being part of that. And uh, I remember thinking, I, I have to step away from this. I, even though I really want to hang out with these guys, I have to step away from this because the conversation is becoming gossipy. And if I'm honest with you, one of the things I was embarrassed about, I, I thought, you know, they're not really even keeping the volume low. So I, I wondered what people at neighboring tables were hearing and, and stuff. And it just was making me, you know, do you ever have one of those moments where you just feel like you're sinking into a seat and you're just wanting the embarrassing moment to end? That's how I was feeling every time we get together. I thought, oh, when's this going to end? When's this going to end? And finally, it just felt so bad that I thought, I can't do this anymore. And so I stopped getting together for lunch with them because I thought, it's really just becoming a gossip fest, and I don't feel comfortable being part of this. And then I look at what it's saying here in 1 Thessalonians 4, and I can't help but wonder if to a degree the Thessalonians were becoming caught up in maybe that same kind of web. And what I mean by that is this. The devil loves to distort genuine fellowship. And he loves to try and take advantage of the ways that believers live in close proximity. So when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, part of that is fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in very intentional ways, we try and share life together. You know, we, we, if we're doing it right, we try and share life together. And so the Thessalonians were certainly doing that. And in our, in, in our era right? In our context here, that's the type of thing we find ourselves trying to do. You know, we try and share life together. So they're sharing many aspects of their lives together. They're getting to know each other on, on a very deep level. And what ends up happening sometimes if we allow the devil to distort the fellowship that Christ has allowed us to have, we could very easily start slipping into sharing news that really shouldn't be shared. And you don't always realize right away you're doing it. Because sometimes it could be born, at least initially, from genuine concern. And it could be very easy to sometimes guise that. Sometimes I've seen people guise that under, you know, hey, I've got, I got something you really ought to pray about. It's like, okay, well, do you need to announce it to the world, right? Do you need to tell it to a group? Is it the type of thing, do you have permission from the person to say this? 
Or do you think maybe they wouldn't be comfortable with other people knowing this information? You know, we have a, um, a prayer ministry here at the church, and we always try and be very sensitive to that. You know, is this public info? Is this private info? Is this something somebody would want people to know about, something they wouldn't want people to know about? Because I think probably what was happening here in the church at Thessalonica is under the guise of genuine concern, they were probably starting to overshare news that wasn't theirs to share. And um, in fact, again, when I go back to those lunches, I think that that's how some of that gossip was really getting kind of ramped up among these ministry leaders. I think it initially started from genuine concern, but eventually became the type of thing where it's like, I don't even know that there's concern left in this. I think you're just ripping on a guy, you know? And so you have Paul challenging the church at Thessalonica. And he challenges them, live quietly, mind your own affairs. Live quietly, mind your own affairs. He's saying basically, you don't need to stick your nose in the business of others continually, particularly if you're doing that with unwise or unhealthy motives. It's the idea of check your motives. There are times where we as believers really do need to step in and confront one another about sin issues, about other things. That's not what he's, real, that's not what he's talking about here. There are times we do need to lovingly confront one another. But he was talking about this idea of basically being a busybody about somebody else's mess. That's what he's really getting at here. He's saying, don't be like that, right? And so if we're seeking to grow in our walk with Christ, we would be wise to aspire to that counsel because it does impact the nature of our relationships. It impacts the nature of the kind of trust that we can show one another. And it also impacts unity among the church because if the church doesn't feel like, you know, if people of a church don't feel like they could truly trust their brothers and sisters in Christ, what they end up doing is they just clam up and they don't share anything, including the things that need to be shared. And you have people not praying for one another because a whole spirit of distrust begins to develop. And so Paul was trying to confront that so that didn't conflict with the loving relationship that they had been developing. Something else that he gets at here that I think has a lot of value, and that's this. As he's going on, as he's talking about these things, in verses 11 and 12, he encourages them to be, to be people who aspire to work with your hands and be dependent on no one. Now, in a moment, I'm going to give you some context of why he shares this specifically, but let me reread verses 11 and 12. He says this, "...and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs..." And to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, the way that the Lord has created us is fascinating. Uh, I think it's clear that we've been designed by the Lord to be people who remain healthier mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually if we stay active. Wouldn't you agree? If you stay active, those things tend to be healthier than if you become uh, dormant or, or overly passive or overly sluggish. Now, certainly there are times for rest as well. You know, there are times when you need to rest, there are times for healthy rest. We want to balance these things. But in many ways throughout Scripture, the Lord teaches us not to be slothful or lazy people. Not to be slothful, not to be lazy. Let me show you a couple verses that, that emphasize this. In Proverbs twenty one twenty five, it says this, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Why would, you know, why would it say that in Proverbs? What does it mean? The, des- the desire of the slugger kills him. Why did it kill him? His hands, his hands refuse to labor. 
You know, well, think of that statement in the midst of an agrarian society. You know what happens? You choose not to labor unless you have somebody that's willing to constantly make up for that for you. Eventually, people get sick of it, and you know, you, what happens? You, you starve, right? So, so you have, you know, in Proverbs 21, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. How about this? I love what it says in Ephesians 4.28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that's a portion of Scripture being shared with believers in Jesus Christ who are seeking to grow in their walk with Christ. And you have a contrast here as the Apostle Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 shares about these things. And he says, listen, let's compare your old life with your new life in Christ. In your old life before you knew Christ, some of you were thieves. And as thieves, what did you do? You stole. Right? You stole. That's what thieves do. Thieves steal. And he's saying, let the thief no longer steal. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a new mind, you have a new heart, don't steal anymore. From anyone, in any context, whether something big or whether something small. Let the thief no longer steal. He says, rather, this is what it looks like when someone's mind and heart have been transformed by Jesus Christ. You labor. You do honest work at whatever the Lord gives you to do. Not so that you're taking dishonestly from others, but so that you would have an abundance that you could share with others. It's a completely different mindset. One mindset seeks to steal, the other mindset seeks to share. And again, you could tie that right back to what Christ has done for us. Christ didn't come to this earth to get anything from us. I can assure you, there is nothing that you had and nothing that I had that Jesus needed. If He can speak creation into existence and spoke my life into existence, and fashioned me, and, and uh, did all the things that He has done, and sustains this universe by His powerful Word, I can assure you He needs nothing from me. There's nothing He needs from me. He didn't come to this earth to get anything from me, and He didn't come to this earth to get anything from you. Sometimes, and I've shared this before, sometimes I hear people say, you know, He just wanted, He just needed more love. Came to this earth because He needed more love. That sounds adorable, doesn't it? You just need him more love. Well, guess what? He's the perfection of love, and he's lived in perfect community with the Father and with the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Um, he, he didn't need you to give something. You know, and when he came to this earth, he came to people who were set as his enemies. You know, we, weren't, we didn't pat him on the back. We didn't welcome him. We despised him and nailed him to a cross. He didn't come to this earth to get anything from you. He did come to this earth to bless you to give to you. And that's the mindset you see the Apostle Paul encouraging the church at Ephesus to start to adopt. Don't be a thief. Work with your hands. Labor honestly. And share what the Lord blesses you with. Share because you've been shared with. Now, Paul wasn't somebody that was talking out of turn here because when you look at Paul's history, he was a man who worked with his hands. Even when he was ministering among the people of Thessalonica, he made and he sold tents. And he did that so he wouldn't be a burden to them. Now, there were other churches that supported Paul's ministry, but much of what he did was also funded by his own diligent entrepreneurial efforts as he was making and selling tents, and so that's what he would do. And you would think that that would be an example that the people of Thessalonica would have remembered, but when you look at Paul's comments here in this letter, as well as what he shares with them in his second letter, 
because he really starts to lay it on the line when you get into 2 Thessalonians, and we'll get into that in a few weeks. But it appears that some of these believers in Thessalonica, even though they were loving, they had also become lazy. They'd become slothful. Some of them had actually given up on working. They had stopped. And the more that became apparent to the Apostle Paul, the more it troubled him. And so he decided, listen, I love you guys enough to just tell you, this has to end. So why were they doing that? Why would this loving church all of a sudden drift towards sloth? Doesn't it seem not logical in a sense? It seems kind of funny that that would be what they would do. Why were some, and basically what was happening, by the way, was some of the people were trying to just live off the charity and the generosity of some of the wealthier Christians that were in the midst of, of their city church there. And so you have these wealthier Christians that apparently had been showing financial kindness to some of these others and supporting their slothfulness, at least temporarily. Um, but, but why was this happening? You know, why were some of these people trying to live off that charity instead of working? It appears, when you look at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and see some of the things that are shared in that context, it appears that some of this activity might have actually been connected to their perspective toward Christ's return. And what I mean by that is this, because they knew that Jesus could return at any time, they reasoned that there wasn't much point now in working. So you come back at any time. You know, what's the point of building? What's the point of saving? What's the point of investing if Jesus might return in a day or two? What's the point? Let's just hang out. You know, it's sunny today. Just go outside and just enjoy the sun. What are you doing tomorrow? Same thing. (laughs) How about the next day? You know my routine, you know. That's kind of what had become their thing. Instead of working, they were just kind of lounging around. Now, here's the thing. I believe Jesus could come back at any time. Any time. It could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. I believe he could come back at any time. But I also agree with the statement that I heard some years ago. I don't really know who to attribute this to, and I'm not even 100% certain that I'm quoting it 100% exactly how it was originally said. But someone once said this, and I'm probably about 90% on with what I heard. Um, but they said this. They said, live as if Jesus might return today, but work as if he isn't coming back for another hundred years. So they said, live as if Jesus might be coming back today, but work as if he might not be coming back for another hundred years. And I heard that statement. I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe there could be better ways that that statement is phrased, but the essence of that, I, I think, has value. Live as if he's coming back today, but also recognize, look, you know, work as if maybe he's not coming back for another hundred years, because we don't know. We don't know when he's coming back. He hasn't said. Now, in the meantime, we're all dependent on the Lord to sustain us. Scripture reveals to us that Jesus is presently sustaining our lives. He created this universe, and he's sustaining it by his powerful word. But he has not called us to develop an unhealthy dependence within the church. Excessive dependence is not a healthy thing. And by the way, you don't have to look very far to find examples of how it's not healthy. There are people in our world, in our culture, who work much harder at trying to find ways to take advantage of charity or trying to take advantage of social safety nets than they ever worked at trying to find a job. And what's the result? Well, the result is this. Broken families, moral depravity, idleness, crime, and a mindset that thinks that it's entitled to the fruit of another man's labor. That's garbage. And it's something that I see over and over and over and over again. 
And I grow tired of it because it's not a biblical mindset and it's not a biblical principle. And you can see Paul trying to address this, at least among believers. I don't expect unbelievers to share the mindset we're talking about right now, but a believer absolutely should. And so in his letters to the Thessalonians, you have Paul trying to nip this problem in the bud. And if we aspire to be people who who try and get our lives together. This is counsel we should, we should follow as well because it's biblical counsel. It follows the model that Christ gave to us. And we can glorify Christ in any task that he's given us to do, and we can glorify him in nearly any form of employment. I would say there's probably a few forms of employment we cannot glorify Christ in. So I'll say nearly any form of employment you can glorify Christ with a few obvious exceptions. Work with your hands. Work hard. Don't develop an entitled mindset. Don't develop an unhealthy form of dependence because that's what the church at Thessalonica was starting to do. And Paul says, hey, this is not a good example to others of what Christ has done for you. And there's one other thing that he brings up here that I want to finish with today, and that's this. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do think it matters. He encourages us to be people who earn the respect of those who don't share our faith. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let me reread that. He says, so that you may walk properly before whom? Outsiders and be dependent on no one. Had a conversation with my daughter recently uh, about Billy Graham. And we were talking about Billy Graham. We were talking about the fact that over the past century, he is one of the most well-known Christians uh, worldwide. Now, I you know, imagine it's certainly the case, and not everyone agreed with the gospel messages. He would preach the gospel, not everyone agreed with his perspective toward the Lord or his perspective toward Scripture, his perspective toward the gospel. But most people, including many, many world leaders, seem to respect him as a man. I think that's kind of fascinating. It was interesting the doors that the Lord opened up for Billy Graham in the midst of that kind of mutual respect. I don't know if you ever heard this story, but when Graham was a young man, I don't know exactly how old he was, but this was in, I could do math, but I'm not going to do it in front of you here, because I know it was in 1949 that this took place, and I believe he died two years ago yesterday, so I think it, and I think he was either 99 or 100 years old. He was right around in there, so someone could do the math later, um, uh, but I think he was in his early 30s, I guess, it was 1949, and um, and he, was, he had set up this crusade, this revival in the city of Los Angeles. And uh, he's there in Los Angeles. He's about to do this. And at the time in the late 40s, one of the most prominent people in media, one of the most prominent newspaper owners was a man named William Randolph Hearst. Have you ever heard that name, William Randolph Hearst? And he did something, and nobody knows why he did this. But he sent a note. It was just a two-word note to the journalists that worked for him. And it said just two words. And this was what he told those that worked for him. William Randolph Hearst sent them a note that simply said this, Puff Graham. That's it, Puff Graham. I look at that, it's like, Puff Graham. What does that mean, Puff Graham? Well, what, if you're going to puff someone, you're going to talk them up, right? You're going to talk them up. And so his point was, it was without saying so many words, he said, Puff Graham. That was the cue to his reporters, cover this crusade. 
Write about it. Put it on the front page. Talk about it at length. Have lots of pieces about it. Nobody knows why William Randolph Hearst did this because he and Billy Graham didn't know each other. There was, no, there was no obvious reason why he did this, but he said, Puff Graham. And so the journalists started doing that. And all of a sudden, Billy Graham's notoriety was launched, and people knew him all over the place. They even said that several, and I don't know which celebrities this was, I'd have to look this up, but several prominent celebrities of the late 40s came to the crusade and came to faith in Jesus Christ at the crusade, and then were talking about that, and the crusade had to get extended, and it was going on and on and on, and... Again, William Randolph Hearst, I don't know what his spiritual condition was, but he wasn't somebody that knew uh, Billy Graham or anything like that, but he just said to his journalist, Puff Graham. And so I look at that and I think, okay, clearly, somehow, by the Lord's grace, Graham had earned the respect of Hearst. And Hearst felt led to tell his journalists to do that. I believe the Lord was orchestrating all sorts of details in the midst of that. And then what do you have Billy Graham doing? Well, for many decades, you have Graham enjoying a long, scandal-free ministry. A long, scandal-free ministry. And what you have is the, you know, the respect that he earned from those outside the body of Christ opened up doors and allowed him to preach in all sorts of places in front of many people who came to faith in Jesus Christ during the course of Billy Graham's ministry. And that was the kind of testimony that the Apostle Paul wanted the Thessalonians to have. But he was afraid if they drifted toward gossip and laziness, that they would end up doing a disservice to the gospel in the midst of their city. If you're going to drift toward gossip, if you're going to drift toward laziness, you're going to rob yourself of the opportunity for people to even give a care about your love for each other. And in fact, your love for each other is going to end up turning into bitterness And you're going to have uh, all sorts of, just a terrible reputation among the people of the community that you're trying to reach with the gospel. And so that's why Paul's challenging them with these things and encouraging them to be wise about how they walked in the midst of those who didn't know the faith, because they were living testimonies of what it looked like to have a life changed by Jesus Christ. So let me say this as we finish up this morning. What kind of testimony do we have? So for you and I living in our era, what kind of testimony do we have? Meaning, would someone who doesn't share our faith, would that person say, those people really have their lives together? Would they say that in observing Christ's people, Christ's church? Would they say, you know what, those people really have their lives together. As men and women who trust in Jesus Christ, as men and women who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, Let's aspire to give this world the best glimpse of Christ we possibly can. Let's make sure that they see Christ in our love, in our lifestyle, and in the labor of our hands. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of your word today. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that You inspired the Apostle Paul to write these things down and and encourage the church to understand these things and to grow in, in their application of these things. And Lord, even though we live in a different generation, people are people. We all tend to do the same things. We all have the same type of things that we gravitate toward. So Lord, thank you for the good counsel we're given here. Thank you for the help and the assistance that you give to us through your word. Lord, we want to be people who aspire to to 
really have our life together as followers of your son, Jesus Christ, to be people who truly do earn the respect of outsiders, those that don't share our convictions, those that don't share our faith. We know, Lord, that that often earns us the opportunity to be able to proclaim the details and the message of the gospel. So, Lord, we pray that our lives would not be characterized by worldliness or laziness or sloth or gossip or any of those things that we can easily drift toward. We're humans. We still have our sin nature. We wrestle with all sorts of things. But we're grateful for the new nature that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the, the empowering that you give to us through the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in a way that honors you. So, Lord, thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the admonition that you've given to us from your word today. We pray that by your grace we'd apply it to our lives and that you would use the manner of life that you inspire within us to be a tool that helps open doors for the message of your gospel to be shared. We're grateful for these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.